So why are we showing these videos? We're going to be showing them each week. What I want to impress on you is that the world is looking for community. And if you can just begin to listen to music and to watch these movies that you're watching with that in mind, you're going to see all over the place and all mediums of entertainment, this desire to be together with other people. I believe the church holds the answer to that desire. There's a lot of talk about love in our world. It's the number one theme in popular music for the past six decades. The number one theme, although usually romantic love. But to be human is to want to love and be loved. Can you at least start there and agree with that? I mean, I think you probably, I don't think you're going to argue with that. I don't, at least that would surprise me if you, if you argue with that. That's fine. But I think it's kind of obvious we want to be loved, we want to love. There's something that seems to be wired in human beings towards that end. You know, if you're just joining us in this series called Together, we're only the second week in, so you're, you're joining us at a good time, and I want to welcome you to this series. I think it could be, and it can be, and I, by faith I trust that it will be, extremely impactful on our church to really come together, to really be and become the community that God wants us to be for His glory. And if you were with us in the first part last week, you'll perhaps recall that we looked at Genesis 2.18. Where God declared, it is not good that man should be alone. That's not just aiming towards marriage. It's not just going to find its remedy in a spouse. It's really wired into us as human beings that we are not to be alone. God's the one that created us with something internally that needs and wants to be with other people. He bound that within us, this need for relationship. And perhaps surprisingly, not just relationship with him, not just relationship with God, but other people as well. Our society has created a multitude of ways to try and, and meet this need for togetherness. Yet I made the statement, and I'm going to make it again. You're going to hear it throughout this series. Only in the church, the body of Christ, can we have the fullest experience of togetherness here on earth. Over 100 times in the New Testament, there's this phrase, one another. Nearly 60 of them are specific commands for how Christians are to live towards each other in the church. And all together, they're divine instructions for how we could become a church that is truly together. So I'm going to ask you to do something that begins now and will stay with you for the rest of this series. Can you do this? I mean, just try at least to do this. And I think the way that you can actually ratify that in yourself, the way that you can actually cement this in yourself is to pray for this throughout the week. I'm going to ask that you approach every one of these sermons with a question, a very simple question that you offer to the Lord. And here's the question. God, is there something you need me to change in my life so that I could be in my church better? It's a very simple question. Actually, it's intentionally pretty wide open. Is there something that you need to change in me so that I can live 
and be in this church better. And I'm going to let you throughout the course of these sermons learn what better is and what God might be saying to you. But can you at least come with humility? At least come with your soul before the Lord saying, okay, if there's something you want me to change, I'm going to trust that you're going to speak that to me. And let's see what the Lord says. The first essential instruction that we're going to look at, the first one another that we're really going to look at, is found in John 13. Can I invite you to turn your Bibles? We are a a church that preaches from the Word of God. We will always be preaching from the Word of God. We're not Bible-based. We are Bible-centered. And there is a big difference between the two. And while you're opening to John chapter 13, it's the fourth book in the New Testament. Very simple to get to. Let me just at least begin to introduce it this way. None of the other one another commands can operate without this one. That's how important this one is. None of the other ones, nearly 60 of them, will work if we do not do this one. And it's without doubt the very least lived one of them all. I mean, that's the amazing irony of this, is that none of them work without this one, but yet this is the one that's the least lived. We're probably the poorest in this one than any of them. And Jesus says this, John 13, starting in verse 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if You have love for one another. So Jesus is giving his disciples, and we are included, a command, a criteria, and a condition. That's actually the outlines. Really super simple. A command, a criteria, and a condition. We're going to look at each one of them in turn. Here's the first one. Let's look at the command. A new commandment, verse 34, I give to you. Put yourself into the you. It's a plural pronoun. We're included. He's not just speaking to the 11 disciples. You're already asking, why just 11? I thought there were 12. Judas had already left. And because he had already left, by the way, have you ever had somebody over to your, to your, your home for maybe a celebration, maybe a family get-together, and one of them just drains your family? One of them is just difficult to be around. And the moment that that person leaves to go home, an incredibly new spirit comes over everybody that's still there. Have you ever experienced that? Well, this is really almost, I think, what we're seeing happening. Judas has left to arrange the betrayal of Jesus. And all of a sudden, the Last Supper, all of the the intercourse, all of the dialogue goes so much deeper and more intimate. And we get This commandment, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Very simply, the command is to love one another. Now, keep this in your mind, ready? This is true for all of the commands in the Bible. This is one worth writing down. Put it in your Bible's margin if you want. Put it on that notepaper. Whatever you want to do, put it in your mind. Anchor it there. God will never command what he will not empower God will never command what he will not empower. And I'm going to flip that. God will always give you the power to do what he commands. You just have to believe that. Otherwise, this feels so moralistically heavy that you're never going to be able to do this. Because right now, you ought to be really thinking, 
of what you understand love to be and analyzing yourself, putting yourself up on the wall, so to speak, like an x-ray from your doctor, and that backlight display comes on, how well do you love? And probably there's lots of tumors. There's lots of dark spots. It's kind of discouraging when you see it through the eyes of the Bible. So we need to remember, God will always give you the power to do what he commands. Always. That's his grace. It's not complicated. Love one another. It's just incredibly difficult. But it's not, it's not complicated. We have a very clear command, and it ought to prompt two questions for us. One of them right now is why, and the second one is who. The first one, why, why is this called a new commandment? I mean, you've got to be thinking about this. The Bible has been talking about love for a long time, all the way back to that very strange, this is where you quit reading through the Bible in a yearbook called Leviticus. I mean, haven't you been trying to do that? I am going to read through the Bible in a year. January 1, it's my resolution. And man, Genesis is kind of cool. Exodus is really awesome. It's like reading the comic book of the Bible, all supernatural. Eventually you're going to get to Leviticus and all of a sudden things are going to like slow down to almost a comatose pace. And that's where most people give up. But all the way back in Leviticus chapter 19... God said this, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now remember, Jesus in John 13 is giving this new command just hours before he's crucified. This is probably 11 o'clock in the evening, maybe 10 o'clock in the evening. Whatever o'clock it is, it's in the evening on Thursday. He's going to be put up on the cross just a few Hours later, Friday morning at 9 o'clock in the morning. So he's just about to be crucified. He's speaking. He's giving this new command. Earlier that week, if you remember the, the timeline, you can see this in a couple of the Gospels. Uh, Mark is one of them. The Jewish scribes, they're experts, they're lawyers. They're really pe people that know the law of God in and out. They had tried trapping Jesus. They had asked him which command was the most important. All that was is a trap question. They're trying to implicate him. So he answers, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now this is Mark chapter 12. You're going to see it on the screen. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But now Jesus gives his disciples a new command. He wants us to love one another. So he kind of changes the verbiage. So let's get a little bit of insight. Why is it called new? What, in fact, does the word new mean? Now, by the way, did you know you were going to come to church? And discover what the word new means? I mean, isn't that incredibly exhilarating? Some of you are trembling with excitement right now. It's actually pretty important. New in the Greek here is best translated fresh. Fresh. 
But that really doesn't give you enough precision to really do anything with this because you can use the word more than one way, the word fresh more than one way. You can say, for instance, that you just today made fresh bread and smell the aroma around the house. That's one way you can use it. And this way you made something that never existed before. That bread wasn't existing anywhere else. You made it from the ingredients and there it is. Or you could say that you just gave your car a fresh coat of paint. Is it already had paint, but you just repainted it. It looks new, different, beautiful. See, Jesus takes the original command that I read to you a little while ago in Leviticus 19. He dusted it off. He gives it a new and fresh perspective. And he had to. You know why? By the way, what I'm about to tell you, we are all prone to doing. See, the original command from Leviticus, love your neighbor, had been hijacked. It had been narrowed. It had been twisted into something really unrecognizable. Remade into, you must love those who are like you. That's where Judaism, the religion of the Jewish people, had gotten to by the time that Christ walked this planet. They had remade love your neighbor as yourself into a twisted caricature of it where you must love people that are like you, that are easy to love. That is really not the power of God's love on display. Now, I told you a moment ago, we all can tend to do this. I'm going to ask you to examine yourself. Is it not, just be honest, is it really not a much easier thing to love somebody that's like you or to love someone that's easy to love? Isn't it much, much harder to love people very differently from you or people that are difficult, people that are not naturally lovable? And you've got them in your life. I have them in my life. It is difficult to love people. If you love those who love you, Jesus said, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. You know, if you're going to love somebody that's easy to love or somebody that's like you, really, you're not really doing anything worthy of praise and honor. Because even non-believers do that. That's kind of the law of the land. You see, the world was incredibly divided in the days of Christ. I mean, you get onto Facebook for 22 seconds, and you're going to get a glimpse of a very divided world, right? Arguments, debates, even in the Christian community, flying back and forth. Well, if you think that it is bad today, I'm going to tell you something that might shock you. It was actually worse, if you can believe that, at the time of Christ. There was division in virtually every facet of every system. There was a division between Jews. They despised the Gentiles. And the Gentiles hated the Jews. Rich people looked down at the poor people. Poor people were jealous of the rich people. Men treated women with demeaning attitudes. And women had spite and returned to the men. Listen, it was slave and free. It was division everywhere. Roman and Greek. Greek and Parthian. Parthian. Every, every sector of society at the time of Christ had a barrier and a division between them. 
And the Spirit of God, now listen, Jesus is speaking this command hours before he's crucified, just several weeks after he has risen. Here comes the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit of God is going to break out and pour down on his people and men and women, thousands of them at a, at a sermon. They're going to get saved daily, and there's going to be in that new community called the church, there's going to be masters, there's going to be slaves, there's going to be Jews, there's going to be Greeks, there's going to be rich people, there's going to be poor people, there's going to be free people, and there's going to be slaves. And they're all going to come together in this community called the church. How are they going to make it? Well, now you know why Jesus is giving them a new command. Because he knows what's about to happen. They've got to learn how to live together. And this is going to be a massive struggle for the early church. Just like it is a struggle for the modern church today. There is a worldwide neighbor-wide love that we have to have for our co-workers, our classmates, our teachers, our neighbors. But listen, I'm going to tell you something that you may not have known. And if you did, that's fantastic. Now we can go a little deeper. But Jesus isn't talking about that kind of love in this command. He's not talking about the love that you need to have for all the world that actually gives you the catalyzing power to go on mission trips and, and, and sell your belongings to give to the poor. That's really important. The Bible talks about that. We need to be doing that. We need to be displaying that. But this love that he gives is for one another. It is for those in the church toward each other. This is a little bit different audience. So he gives a, the old command in a fresh, new way. He says, get ready. There's going to be people different from you. They're going to come into my church, and you must love them. The Apostle Paul saw both the love for the people of the world as well as those of the church. He wrote about it in 1 Thessalonians. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So there's a one another love, and there's a love for all. That's worldwide love for all. There is church love one another. And Paul understood how difficult it would be to love each other as people very different from each other were going to get saved and come into the body of Christ called the church. It is here that change can begin to be possible for us. And so I'm going to ask you a question. This is how you facilitate your own change. You let the gospel, you let the word of God ask you questions. Search me, O oh God, and see. Are you loving those different from you in our church? Now, I had to resort to extreme measures last week to help you understand the importance of actually deliberating with questions and stories and illustrations and teachings that any pastor can give. Some of you remember that. It was a fictitious story. I'm not going to do that this week. But I do really want to impress on you. Can you answer that question? Can you just deliberate for a moment in your own internal mind? Are you loving those different from you in our church here? This requires, of course, that we begin to understand how to love. And this is where Jesus takes us next. Here's point number two, the criteria. Let me read to you something from Charles Spurgeon. 
We are to love our neighbor as ourselves, but we are to love our fellow Christians as Christ loved us. Do you see the difference? Have you ever thought on that difference? And that is far more than we love ourselves. So yes, we are to love the person that lives next to us as ourselves. We're to love the people that we work with as ourselves. If you wouldn't want somebody to do this to you, you should not do that to them. But we are to love our fellow Christians as Christ loved us. Here's a criteria. This is now a whole nother level. Your coach, your professor, your boss, they're going to evaluate you. You're going to get a performance evaluation at some point. And if you don't know the criteria that they're going to use, well, it's frustrating at best, and it's impossible at worst to succeed. So the criteria is the standard. It's the measure that's expected of you. And Jesus gives it clearly. Verse 34, as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So we're to love each other in Cornerstone. How? Well, it's super simple. The very same way that Christ loved us. Very simple, but very, very difficult. There were a lot of times in graduate school that a professor assigned something to me that I could not understand very well. But I was almost always too embarrassed to ask for clarity. So honestly, it really wouldn't be unusual that you might not be really understanding what love here even means. I mean, if we're going to be commanded to love one another as Christ has loved us, we ought to probably start with defining the word love the right way. Because there really is four different Greek words for love. I'm just going to give you the one here. It's the Greek verb. This is a verb. Love one another. It's a verb in the Greek in this verse. It's agapio. Super simple word, agapio. It means to intentionally seek what is best for someone. Even if that person seeks the worst for us. That's hard. It's a selfless love that one chooses whether you feel like it or not. Now, everybody hear me for a moment. I want you to hear that again. I'm, in fact, it's so important. I'm going to say it again. And this time, we're going to throw it up on the screen. And this love is one you must determine to display. This is not one that you do when you feel like it. See, romantic love ebbs and flows. It's very much based on your feelings. And it could be beautiful, and it could be wonderful, and it could be missing in a lot of marriages. But this is not romantic love. This is love that you determine to display intentionally, even if that person is not displaying it to you. But what does it look like to live it out? I mean, that's kind of where the, the rub is, right? That's what we really want to know. I mean, here we go. Here's the standard. We're going to be evaluated by this. You stand before Christ. Your evaluation is going to be how well did you love? Did you love as I loved. And by the way, if you're here right now going, well, you know what? I know this is important, but there's just people I'm never going to want to love. Well, you're probably going to have to admit that to Jesus Christ. And I'm going to give you a very sobering warning. I doubt very much you will ever hear from him. Well done, good and faithful servant. I mean, come on. Would it really be a good boss that gives you 
all glowing remarks if you're really not doing well in your job? Is that not a lying boss? And our Savior is the truth. And so, yes, you are saved by grace. But if you want to yield rewards, if you want to let them burn up like hay, wood, and stubble, then just refuse to love because you're going to experience that in your future. Now, what I'm trying to do right now, even in saying that, is putting some premium impetus on why right now you must change your ways by the grace of God. If you're not a naturally loving, supernaturally loving person, then you must change. And hopefully before this message is done, I'm going to show you how that can happen. The key to understanding how Jesus loved, and the Bible clearly shows us how he did, is to just simply go to 1 Corinthians 13. This is Jesus in written form. This is how he lived his life. And in 1 Corinthians 13, you're going to see it on the screen, it goes like this. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Now, I have personally found it much more helpful to just simply replace the word love with Jesus. Let's try it. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. He is not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jesus never ends. Now that's a little bit different. So how can you now really evaluate yourself? How well do you love? Well, let me give you one more little trick of the trade. Just simply put your own name now in place of love, and I'll do it for me. Tim Ackley, I, me, I am, well, am I patient and kind? I can't even say it before I stumble. But I've got to have courage if I'm going to evaluate myself against this standard of Christ, this criteria to love the way that he has loved me. If 1 Corinthians 13 really does capture how Jesus loved, then I've got to be brave. I've got to plummet into the depths of this and muddle my way through it. So let me keep going. I do not envy or boast. I am not arrogant or rude. I do not insist on my own way. I am not irritable or resentful. I do not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoice with the truth. I bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things. I never end in what a colossal lie. I haven't scored high marks on any of these. Now, there are seasons in my, time, my life where I could do really well by God's grace. But then there are seasons in my life, usually when things aren't going the way that I want, that I absolutely do terrible. But now I've seen 1 Corinthians 13 in a whole different light. I've seen this is the standard. This is how Jesus loved. Now I've put myself below that standard, and I don't look so good. And I'm wondering how well you look. Did you find reading yourself into this to be humbling? 
Do you love each other in this church as Jesus loves you? I'd suggest we all immediately begin to pray. Jesus, teach me to love others as you have loved me. I think that's the starting ground. But of course, we've got to move on because it's not done. We've gone to the criteria, and now we're going to go to the condition. And we see in verse 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. Oh, my goodness. If, if, well, there's our conditional word. If you have love for one another. If you're like me, having just done that exercise that I just led us through in 1 Corinthians 13, then you're probably asking, I think you should be asking, how can I ever love like Jesus? And the answer is, you can. Now that's an incredibly bombastic statement to make. I just said, you can love like Jesus. Now listen, wouldn't it be ludicrous? Wouldn't it be ridiculous if Jesus gave us a command that we have no hopes of ever realizing? That would be, well, I have done this, by the way, as a parent. That would be like manipulating my kids into cleaning the room by telling them I'll give them a day off from school and then telling them just joking. Oh, I think they tried calling Dyfus on me one time. Listen, if Jesus is going to tell us to do something... He's not speaking out of both sides of his mouth. He's not saying, you know, I'm going to tell you to do this, but you have no hopes of ever doing this. You are doomed. He's not saying that. We can love like Jesus. And our hope is found in two words in verse 35. You ready? So easy. So clear when I explain this. Here's the two words. My disciple. You see, a disciple of Jesus is someone who has come to Christ in faith and is born again. And that born-again person, listen, this happened to you, Christian, it happened to me. That born-again person is given a new nature. You know what Jesus does? He removes the old heart of stone that wanted to sin. That its proclivity was to disobey God. He took that out of your soul and he put a new heart, a new soul, a a new nature rather. He put that inside of you. And the most amazing thing happens. Jesus Christ said, you know what? I've given you a new nature just like a car has a new motor. But without fuel, that thing's going nowhere. So he put his spirit inside of us to dwell. And that Holy Spirit begins to work and that Holy Spirit begins to exert his power so that there's an amazing truth for us. The power of God is at work in you, Christian, to be able to love like Christ. In fact, God poured his love into you so that it would overflow to other people. I'm going to read it to you. God's love, Romans 5, 5, has been poured into our hearts. Can you just picture 
Can you imagine, rather, God having a pitcher full of liquid, clear spiritual love, and he pours it into the new nature that he just gave to you? And by the way, if you know the Greek here, he didn't just pour a few drops. He poured and poured and poured until all of a sudden it came over the lip of your soul, over the lip of your nature, and began spilling horizontally to other people. This is the imagery in this verse. God poured his love into our hearts. How? Through the Spirit of God, through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So listen, if you are my disciple, rather, if you are Christ's disciple, he's given you a new nature. He put the Spirit of God inside of you. And at that moment, he poured into you through the Spirit love so much that it's spilling out to other people. Yet there's a condition. I already drew your attention to it. It's the word if. By this all people will know that you are my disciples. If. If you have love for one another. Francis Schaeffer was one of the greatest teachers and examples of love for us that we will ever see in recent history. He wrote extensively on it, and he wrote these words, and these are incredibly indicting to us. And Jesus turns to the world and says, I've something to say to you, world, on the basis of my authority. I give you a right. You may judge whether or not an individual is a Christian on the basis of the love that he shows to all Christians. Now that's powerful, and that hurts. Schaefer called the love for other Christians the mark of the Christian. The Apostle John said it proves whether or not you are even in Christ. Can you believe this? Look what John writes. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love who? The brothers, the church, each other. He's very intentional with his wording here. Whoever does not love, by implication, people in God's church abide in death. So do you and do I love each other in the church? Do we love each other here at Cornerstone? Well, you're in a conversation with someone when they lean in close and they drop their voice, that's always, almost always, a recipe for sin. Listen, if somebody's got to lean in close and whisper, they shouldn't probably be saying what they're saying. What do you do? How do you love Jesus in that moment? How do you love that person in that moment? How do you love that person the way that Jesus loves you in that moment? Well, you hear of someone in our church who needs a ride and you've got the time, but do you have the willingness? Well, how do you love? How would Jesus love? A brother or a sister through going through unfortunate circumstances, struggling financially because the bottom fell out from under them. And you hear about it. What would love look like in that moment? You're angry because you've been hurt by your Christian friend. How does love respond? I mean, come on, we could all think of hundreds of scenarios. The person on Facebook whose ideologies make you cringe or they make you angry. The person who has all the answers. They're a self-proclaimed expert on all things. Or perhaps someone who has offended you and hurt you grievously. Listen, love requires selflessness and love requires sacrifice. 
Jesus said, greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You know, in the decades after Christ ascended to heaven, Christianity spread around the world, strongly in the direction south of Jerusalem to what today is called North Africa. In the second century after Christ, one Roman lawyer, his name was Tertullian, was converted to Christianity. Christianity. He persuasively defended Christianity against the pagan practices of Rome. And he wrote of pagans looking at Christians and saying, now imagine this, he wrote from a pagan perspective looking at the church saying, look how Christians love one another for themselves. Pagans hate one another. And how Christians are ready to die for each other for themselves, pagans are readier to kill each other. He's comparing the church to the world. And he's saying this is amazing how much they love one another. But out in the world, there's really no love once you get beyond those who are like you and easy to love. In the second century after Christ, Rome looked like the golden age. But listen, only if you were healthy. Woe to you if you got sick in Rome. For then the Roman culture showed its dark underbelly because there was no compassion. It was a missing virtue. In fact, their own philosophers discouraged mercy. They wanted to weed out the weak, almost like an ancient Darwinian natural selection. And even close relatives would leave their own to die. They had no clinics. They had no hospitals. Physician fees were pricey. The poor could not get them. Health care just was not available for the poor. You know how many cities ancient Rome had just after Christ lived on earth? They had 5,000 cities. And sickness was rampant. There was no help for the poor except for the church. See, their Christian ethic moved them to visit the poor, the sick, the needy, the homeless. In fact, prominent historian of medicine Henry Ziggurist wrote that Christianity introduced the most revolutionary and decisive change in the attitude of society toward the sick, giving sick people a preferential position in society that they retain to this day. Do you know that the Christian church began hospitals? That wasn't the world. Friends, let's spend time with each other. Let's do things together. Well, let's go a little deeper. Let's invite someone into your social stream that you don't really know very well. Have people over for dinner. When someone is struggling, do more than just tell them you're going to pray. Just stop and pray. Bring it before the Lord. You know you're a bridge maker. It's called a priest. You can take the hand of God and take it and combine it to the hand of a sufferer. That's what you do when you pray for somebody. So grab both hands and go at it. Pray for people rather than tell them you're going to. Do things with those who are different than you are. When someone hurts you, the best thing you can ever do. When someone hurts you, spend even more time praying for them. I am going to tell you and I'm going to guarantee you from experience, you cannot maintain a root of bitterness for the person you pray for. It's just not possible. 
intentionally, consciously turn your compass needle. You know, we all have one in ourselves. Turn it toward other people. Notice when people are struggling. And if you're allowed by that person, step gently toward them and do a whole lot of listening. Cornerstone, we must love one another selflessly, sacrificially, as Christ loved us. And only then will our communities around us, the east end of the Lehigh Valley, Phillipsburg, only then will the Slate Belt take notice that we really do carry the good news of Jesus Christ. And we carry it into a dark, lonely world that is wired for love but cannot find it. Do you believe this is a command? Amen that if you do. Do you believe that Christ can give you the power to do it? But it's a condition. You actually have to obey. And that obedience must begin immediately. Let's love. Let's love one another. Amen. Let's pray.